Welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all the franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. As always, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and I've got a pair of lovely co-hosts with me this afternoon. Up first from the Bodies of Horror podcast, we have Miss Nicole Goble. Nicole, how are we? We are doing good. How are you? Doing great. I we were just talking off air. I'm super excited for some movie going activities this ap- mm-hmm. afternoon excited for thanksgiving this upcoming week and a little break from the work also joining us this afternoon it's been a while since we've heard from her super excited to have her back on the pod she's one of the co-hosts of the halloweenies podcast she's a member of the losers club and also the co-host of girls on the boys uh, we have miss rachel reeves rachel how are we Hi, I'm so good. Thanks for having me back. October was wild, y'all. So <laughs> I feel like it's the best month of the year for all of us, but it's also sometimes you don't get to enjoy it, right? Yeah. I mean, as much as you would like. Like there's so much work that goes into it. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. The fun hobby work, side work. And then also it was like, oh, yeah, I have a real job, too. And yeah. like, it's like, no, this can't be busy. I've got like, no. it's October, you guys. <laughs> Come on. Um, but super excited to be back and to be back in the, the Hell House arena. Yeah, that's what we are here to talk about today. We are here because you know, earlier this year, we talked about the trilogy of films uh, in the Hell House LLC family. And I don't even think we knew there was going to be a fourth movie when we covered. Like, this was kind of a surprise entry into the series. But at some point this summer, there was, like, the news that there was going to be a fourth film uh, in the Hell House series. So we are here to talk about uh, today the recent re- recently released Hell House LLC Origins, the Carmichael Manor, written and directed once again by Stephen Cognetti, who has written and directed uh, all of the Hell House movies. And I guess, you know, Rachel, I'll kick this to you to start because this got me thinking as I was like putting notes together and actually as I was folding laundry that over on Halloweenies, you're covering the Child's Play series. And now you're doing like the, the recent episode on the uh, Chucky, the TV show, how that is like the brainchild of Don Mancini. Like that is what he's known for. And like that consistency that, of having one creator, like this is really the work of one person. And what do you think that can do when you have like one person kind of like pulling the strings on everything? I mean, it can it can be a great thing. Like in the mm-hmm. case of the Child's Play franchise, somebody that like like Mancini is just a never ending well of ideas, apparently, about what Chucky can do and be and is like open to taking risks and new ideas. Um, and I 
you know, I think one way that we see a similarity is that Cognetti, it's 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 all the 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 through lines and the story and keeping all of that straight yeah. <laughs> and keeping it all in like making sense, sort of, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also I think that there's other franchises where sometimes a creator being too close to the material can be a not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, okay, you need to, like, you're too close. You're not seeing sure. this. And sometimes it takes fresh eyes to be like, hey, but what if this? So I think it can go both ways, but I, I'm i excited to talk about this because I think my answer today would have been a lot different than, like, my answer after the third one. <laughs> yes. The third one, I would have been like, all right, you know what, Stephen? I don't know. I don't know about this. I don't know. Maybe you need some some fresh people in your in your circle but this one it's like all right yeah okay i'm okay with this so it could be good well i feel like and maybe we'll so just to let folks know normally this is the part where we would say hey let's talk about how this movie came together and we're actually going to skip over that this week uh because later in the week i'll actually be sitting down with steven and we're going to kind of talk about how Origins came together. Um, this movie debuted at the Telluride Horror Show this past uh, October. And I had like the privilege of like introducing Steven and introducing like the world premiere of it, as well as hosting like a pair of like question and answer sessions with Steven uh, and along with the audience, like after it made its debut. So we got to talk a lot about how this movie came together and he has like a lot of great info and he specifically talks about the reaction to part two and three Mm. um and like how like two was a bit rushed like strike while the iron is hot and how he had but he had three in mind as he was working on two but also after the release being like okay maybe we got to go back to what people really liked uh about the first movie but we'll talk about that with him uh, so expect that in your feed, maybe as you're getting the turkey prepped Thanksgiving morning, if everything goes to plan. So we'll leave that. Uh, we'll leave that for now. But I think this week, what we're going to do is we're going to dive right into the movie itself. So we're going to keep things kind of humming along here. And I kind of thought like what this movie does is a great job of going back to the basics. Like, I think all of us here are big fans of, like, the original Hell House. Um, Mm -hmm. I think everybody but Devon, oddly enough, who, once again, for all of our co-hosts, like, he loves throwing things into chaos. Like, he's the only one that was like, eh, you know, I think he liked the second one more than the first. Um, But I think that this one mirrors the structure of Hell House LLC, while still being its own like original story in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's something that like, even though the story is different, it felt familiar, but not in a bad way. And I also think that they, they took the time, this whole team to learn maybe from some of their mistakes and, you know, at the time and a slightly, maybe larger budget, maybe just slightly, I don't know mm-hmm. what it is actually, but you, you can see it. And I think that that, it was very smart how they did this and the whole prequel sequel thing I thought was very clever and Mm -hmm. 
particularly for this franchise. I think that was really smart. Yeah. And I, I think it worked, but I know that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Yeah, I definitely like that it feels very rooted in kind of a, a structure similar to the first one. But it's doing, I think, a couple of unique things to make it stand apart, be interesting in and of itself. Because it's one thing to go back to basics and be like, yeah, this is what we're, you know, people really responded to this. And, you know, to what you were talking about with kind of things getting stagnant when you have one creator. Um, I like that there's some different ideas um, at play here. So it does feel like it's it's within the, the continuity, the structure, the feel of the films, but is doing its own thing. Yep. Yeah, and Nicole, what we were like kind of comparing notes off air, like you mentioned how you feel there's like other found footage movies that this pulls from, like in its structure, like where he does his own thing, but also borrows from. Is there anything that really like jumped out to you when you were watching this? Yeah, I mean, this feels very Blair Witch Project to me because you have kind of the current day um, thing going on. I mean, I would say that the current day thing um, is, isn't is necessarily within the, the Blair Witch structure with the other folks talking about the found footage. Um, but when you get into like what's happening at the manor and then them finding the 1989 videos that's very much like all right here's these three kids in the woods and here's them telling the story about Rustin Parr and Ellie and how all of these stories converge and so I I love the Blair Witch Project and mm -hmm. so that really spoke to me it's one of my all-time favorites and when you put that note in I went back and rewatched some of it and trying to see some of that in even some of the scares at the end. Like when you hear Chase yelling from like off screen through a different camera and how like Margot and Rebecca split up. It's kind of mirrors like Heather and Mike splitting up because one of them thinks they hear Josh and the other is like, are you fucking crazy? Why are you running through a murder house on your own right now? No good is going to come of this. Yeah. Even, even when they're like speaking to people that just live in the community, like the guy at the diner mm -hmm. and like at the antique shop and, and the guy who's kind of like the house manager, property manager or whatever, like that felt very Blair Witch, you know, like, oh, hey, I'm on camera. Tell me about this local space, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I also that that was the moment I was like, OK, I see this feels a yeah. little Blair Witchy and I'm and I'm into it. So when it came to we get the forest at the end, too, yeah. I, really, I really I liked it. And yeah. it doesn't feel it doesn't feel derivative, I will say, right. like just pointing that out. It's not like, oh, they're copying Blair Witch. Like it still does. It works in this film and doesn't feel like they're just aping what Blair Witch did it still works but I like you know I like a little subgenre you know nod and reference and... well and, and to that point though I think it's important to take into account that you know 
because of the the cult of Blair Witch, the impact mm -hmm. that Blair Witch had, both kind of in found footage and in the horror genre in and of itself, and just kind of the way it made people um, kind of zone in on that, we have a now framework that we're dealing with, which is kind of rooted in true crime, right? Yeah. And I think that that, like, these things go very hand in hand, um, because isn't that kind of what Blair, the Blair Witch Project is? It's like a true crime podcast that they're videotaping. They're going to this place. They're exploring. They're telling the story. Yeah. And so I, again, I just, it's such a great, smart, kind of locked-in way to, to, again, get it rooted back to the original Hell House and its found footage, um, of foundation but bring in some different bits that make it feel exactly not derivative but current and interesting yeah yeah, yeah and we'll definitely return to that idea of true crime because that's a big part of what drive this story like what Margot is trying to go for here and you know does she kind of get her maybe a little bit of a comeuppance at the end. Like, is it a bit justified? You know, maybe you don't go turning over some of these stones. Um, I think one thing this does really well, and you see this in the, in the original Hell House as well, is you get snippets of the end when things have gone haywire. Like, you get it early on in the movie. Like, in this case, you get, like, Rebecca's 911 call, and it sounds like horrific and scary. And we know that everything is going to build towards that. Like it's very similar to the first movie when you follow this couple like through the hell house and then all hell like literally breaks loose in the basement. Like, you know, oh, bad things are going to happen here and we're going to just build everything towards that moment. So you have that anticipation built into it right away. And I feel like it works really well. And it's kind of why I like the kind of like false documentary mm -hmm. style of this rather than just a straightforward found footage movie. Because it also allows for things like, hey, we can score the footage as well. Although that is creepy as well when you think about it because someone is sitting there and they're essentially scoring what amounts to a snuff movie. Yeah. If you, when you think yeah. about it, it's like, hmm. So then in the world of universe building, you have to think like somewhere there's like a sound composer, an editor, and a director sitting here going like, what What do you think is going to be the best track to go over? Like uh, <laughs> Chase getting his eyeballs like sucked out. Like, what do you think would work? But isn't that the nature of some true crime, right? Hmm. So, I, again, I really love just the texture of it. I think it, it's, it, it's not, other films have done it, obviously, but this just makes a lot of sense to what I think, Rachel, you said at the beginning. This, there's been thought really put in to how the elements of the film fit together like a puzzle. I think. Yeah, the the true crime, like the documentary style. It's funny because 
it is funny to think about somebody scoring it. But at the same time, I think why a lot of those shows have music like that, like you think of those Dateline shows or like Mm -hmm. those, you know, very heavily dramatized kind of shows about this that are extremely popular and that's why there's so many of them but they have that music because it's a buffer and like Mm -hmm. without it it's gonna feel too real it's like it is real but you need something to kind of signal like okay this is a tv show this i'm watching this for you know entertainment or whatever people have a lot of motivations for that as we see in this this film why they're interested in true crime but so I I had mixed feelings on the music because there was a few points I was like okay no that's weird it's a found footage but in the larger framework of kind of the the Dateline special model it makes sense so I I see why they did but it's also like okay I don't know if that jump scare needed a little sting (laughs) yeah it took me out of it for a second but it makes sense in the larger picture I think yeah and it's something where we wouldn't think about it if it wasn't a found footage movie or if it wasn't yeah. being presented as like a faux documentary, if it was just presented. And I think like the the reason the original Hell House was like shot as a found footage movie was like it costs like a lot less money to do so. I think it was like one twentieth of the cost. I don't think it was originally written as a found footage movie, but then it was like, well, here's how much money I have. This is what I can actually do with what I have. Then later on, as you get like a little bit more money or you get a little bit more experience or like, well, I don't necessarily want to do found footage all the time, but it becomes like what the universe is set in. And it's like, how do you escape that? And, you know, spoiler, like Steve Cognetti has talked about, like, if he continues the series, he wants the next movie to not be a found footage movie. And I'm not sure that would work after four movies. Like, it might feel like getting pulled out of the series a bit. Yeah. I would be curious to know what his plan is, because it does feel like this puts a nice cap on everything. Mm Mm-hmm like tying together the three movies that came before it while also expanding it a little bit. But I would feel fine if this was it, you know, like Mm -hmm. if it left like this into all four of these movies, it's like, all right, that was this story. Mm -hmm. But then, but what would the next one be and still tie it into Hell House or is Hell House, is Hell House more a a concept, an idea? Can any house be Hell House? Does it Mm -hmm. have to be tied to the Abaddon, you know? So I, I would be interested and I maybe if it did depart entirely it would make sense like okay this is a new story yeah but yeah I think I would expect it to have some found footage though sorry (laughs) but I think that that is something that series that are based around found footage have to struggle with because at what point does it just not make like (laughs) how many tapes are there how many connected layers can there be to that have been documented via tape um so i yeah it's you kind of paint yourself into a corner now granted it can be like with the paranormal activity series it can be a very big corner um and you can redefine that corner um, in lots of different ways. 
but you have to be thoughtful about it and you have to be creative and mm-hmm. I think that he has the capacity to do that so I think this has done something like where I love the first few paranormal activity movies but I think what happened over time with those movies is they they painted themselves in a corner by like kind of focusing on one story um, and there were just like many chapters to it where that was the kind of series where you could have told so many different kinds of stories within that universe and you kind of chose to focus on one family where after like three movies like all right i'm ready for something else and it just ran out of steam mm-hmm. but, the, but the, the newest one kind of does go a different direction right doesn't it still like the yes the... next of kin the seven was one like the kin one yeah. i can't remember. next of kin which is why i really like it yeah mm-hmm. yeah because uh, it is something completely different like it's its own standalone it, you if you don't even have to put paranormal activity in front of it like it's its own standalone movie you're right and this kind of ties into the world of hell house but it's really its own standalone story like you don't really have to watch the other three movies to watch this movie you can enjoy it as like a unfolding mystery and a really good creepy haunted house movie all on its own although it's definitely enriched by seeing at the very least the first movie um and I think, like, Stephen Cognetti is very interested in, like, building on the lore mm-hmm. of what he's, he's created. And I think in the second and third part, it gets too bogged down in it. Like, okay, you're explaining a bit too much. Like, we're getting a bit way too Jesus-y for my taste. Um, like, maybe we don't necessarily need to go down this direction. And, like, just give me more scares and less, like, of an intense story or intense world building here it's a nice mix like we're getting snippets and we're allowed to kind of maybe connect the pieces together ourselves Mm -hmm. but unlike a lot of found footage movies that wait to the last act to deliver a lot of scares you're really getting some great pacing throughout the movie like setting things up really early and putting them throughout the movie um, so that you're not bored for 80 minutes and then getting like 10 minutes of zaniness at the end especially because we know how it's going to end mm-hmm. like we know from the very beginning they don't make it out we hear mm-hmm. this 911 call so yep. that's tricky basically knowing like how everything's going to come together yeah. it's it's how we get there and i yep. was impressed that they managed to keep it interesting and surprising without getting tiresome or like okay yeah because I mean, it's you don't have to see the other ones, but I will say it does. I feel like you were saying it enriches the experience it does. because, man, like one of my earliest notes is just fuck those fucking clowns. Yes. <laughs> like, you see them and like they're scary all the time. But mm-hmm. having seen all of those films, the second you see them, you're like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, they'll haunt you. Yeah. Well, and I loved your note um, about how lifelike yeah they seem because they they are right those are not those are just people standing there right um oh my god (laughs) like it's they've always been like really creepy 
But in this film, I feel like we get in their face. Yeah. And it is unsettling. That first introduction, when, like, she starts grabbing at his jaw and his cheeks, I'm like, that's not a mask. Like, that is a a dude in some grease paint (laughs) right there. Because that is, like, way too... You're able, like, way too supple to be, like, a mask right there. And that made uh-huh. it all the creepier. And I'm like, why are you touching that? And then there was a line that's dropped in the movie that I don't think is quite followed up on. But at one point, they're like, yeah, there were two clowns in there. And I think Rebecca says, no, there were three. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what? Did one of them just get up and leave at one point? Like, did just one piece out and they never noticed it? Like, that is one of the neat things, too, that, like, these things just seem to be able to teleport. Mm-hmm. It's a bathroom break. They needed yeah. a bathroom break. Because mm-hmm. there are three... Like, there are three in multiple scenes, mm-hmm. and there are three, they kind of address that, I think, when they're sort of, you know, the final exposition, like, tie everything yep. up kind of thing. But I don't recall ever seeing three in that room, but it is creepy. But yeah. I like, I love things like that, though, because it's just like a throwaway. And then you're like, wait, what? And then it, I think it, it all the, comes back. <laughs> the closest I think you have to seeing all three together is there's one scene where like Patrick is standing between them while he's getting filmed by his sister. And as a little side note, he's like standing on like a soap crate because apparently the actor who plays Patrick is about like a good foot shorter oh, than like the funny. clown is like uh Gideon Berger who plays like Patrick Carmichael uh, great actor. He's like really good in this, but I think they're like, uh, like we cast him cause he's really good. And then realized like he's a wee man. Like he's definitely yeah. too short to be the clown. So they had him like did some forced perspective and, uh, on, I think in that scene, like literally had him standing on like a soap soapbox. But he is the third clown, right? Yes. Like that. Okay, because he's yeah. been missing for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, just just making sure yeah. I was following that right. But we don't find out what happened to the father. Right? True. So I'm thinking like that might be you know, because he likes to like Cognetti likes to go in later on and say, oh yeah, this little detail we dropped in this one like this is going to come back in like another installment and maybe you find out what happened to dad or maybe dad is just like well is he with a one set of footprints that was walking away maybe and then maybe I he don't ate know. it in the woods somewhere <laughs> possibly you never know it's like that rule of horror like until you see a body you assume they're either alive or something nefarious has kind of kind of happened to them at some point sure. um yeah and just we'll definitely talk more about these clowns as we go through um there was uh yeah they're just fucking creepy like they're the best part of the series <laughs> and good for him to know like all right we're gonna get them we're not gonna do the abaddon hotel but like we still need to find a way to incorporate these clowns yeah i was i was a little not concerned but like watching it and i'm like okay we're like 30 some 40 minutes in i'm like how the hell are they gonna tie this like i'm yeah like i didn't know or if it was going to tie directly to the mm-hmm. Abaddon. I don't know if you guys felt that way too, but I I was genuinely like, I'm not sure where this is going. I 
I forgot like it wasn't going to be at the hotel. Like when the lights came up and or when the lights went down and the movie starts and then you go to this big ass house and I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's right. This one doesn't take place at a hotel like the hotel burned down at right. the end of it. So I forgot that it wasn't going to take place at well, a, that hotel. And I connecting it to the hotel because I would say that outside of knowing the events. It's not like we get, you know, and maybe I missed it, um, but there's no, like, cut scene to something from the original where we see a sequence from the first hell. Nope. So, not until... Not until after, I think. Like, right. there's like some clown footage, I think, from yeah. the original one, but that's yeah. much later in it. Like the right. last like minute of the movie, but it's more just like a way to build things to a crescendo. But there's nothing in the movie where they have like a snippet of like the original Hell House. Like, I think you get like a photograph of like a painting, and you get like a photograph of like the clock, and yep. that's really about yeah. it, just to yeah, show yeah. that they were there. Uh, but there's nothing with anyone from the first cast at all. And I I appreciate that because I think also when they're trying to knit together different stories within a bigger story, different timelines, it can be so haphazard and it can just be like, I'm just going to make a mention to this or so-and-so is going to be related. Mm -hmm. But this seemed really well-planned out mm -hmm. um so even though you're sitting there at first being like okay well how how is this going to be sewn and stitched together um it's nice when it does because it does feel cohesive and like yeah. okay i well, get it let's talk about relations here let's talk about uh because there is like one thing that stitches like the main character to the clowns and we see that at the end and i kind of guessed it like early on and it's like not necessarily like a, a huge reveal but it's a nice little tie-in let's talk about like margo and rebecca and chase a little bit before we talk like the big scares of the movie and i made a note early on watching this movie that margo may be the worst partner in horror movie history like she's really bad it's almost like someone mentioned like how awful alex is in hell house like man this guy is the worst boyfriend no one could ever treat someone shabbier and cognetti heard that it was like challenge accepted and that said like i love bridget rose perot's performance as margo like it's a really fun character to watch but I'm also like, oh, Rebecca, you deserve so much better. So, so much better as a, for a partner than, than this woman. I mean, she's not great, but one of the worst. I, I it, mean, it could I know be recent. I know we've well, seen worse. I mean, like, I'm from the perspective of, like, I'm not talking about, like, like yes, Jack Torrance is worse. Like, I mean, <laughs> he's obviously much worse. But from the perspective of, like, just not listening and just making yeah. your part, dragging them along, like, basically, like, leading your partner to their death by your own, like, inability to listen to them, like, that type of terrible. Yes. That's true. I will say I did 
like the setup with her brother Mm -hmm. and just getting the little snippets of his past because it did, I think, kind of help explain why she's like, no, he's done this before. Like, let's just wait. He'll be back. Mm hmm. It like kind of explained why they're they're yeah. still there because that's always a thing with these movies. It's like why don't you leave? Yeah. Leave, just leave. Um, so at least there was your a brother. little something. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's also your brother. Like it's you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't abandon my sister in that situation. Like I'd, even without that, but I can understand that does make sense too. But there was a point too where Rebecca says um, something about like, well, one of us has to like make the money and like your, your mm-hmm. obsession it's like oh wait does she not even like this is what she does all the time yes like this is this is her full time it's not a hobby which i think rebecca's saying like this is like you're doing this all the time and i'm the one paying the bills mm-hmm. and so yeah she has every right to be infuriated like this yeah. is your thing like that's great but now you're impacting my job and my ability to do this and like support us so yeah, Margot is not not a great partner. Obviously, there's some past trauma, but still not not great. Rebecca, they they should I don't know they should go to some therapy together. I guess they can't now. Well, they should have I guess. <laughs> well, and I but I feel like this is a trope of a lot of totally. found footage. Mm-hmm. Is that you've got these partners? One is either like. I don't know, essentially like either being a victim of the happenings or it's just kind of like there and wants to get out, wants to make smart moves. And you have the other partner that is an asshole and is like, no, let's poke and prod more. We can't leave now. And then, yeah, I mean, how the dismissive she is to... Rebecca and her new job and being very excited um, about it after she's sacrificed ostensibly quite a bit to go with her on this thing and um, I, I mean it's obviously not the worst partner of all time but I think not that far removed from again the paranormal activity universe mm-hmm. uh, Mika from the first. That's a yeah. good comparison. Yeah, who's also like super dismissive and doesn't pay attention to Katie whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like minimizes what she's going through and like, how am I supposed to do this? Like, don't give it any energy. All right, I'll be as machismo as possible. Well, uh, even with the camera, like everything needed to be on camera. Mm-hmm when she wasn't that thrilled about it and obviously both um chase and rebecca are you know rolling their eyes when she's asking like chase where's your camera and he's like it's right there he's like i was in the bathroom he was like i was just in the bathroom like do you (laughs) want me to record that too and she's like yes that would be great thank you and get b-roll I think, like, a lot of us can speak to, like, knowing a person like Margot, like, someone who, not a bad person, like, I don't want to, like, oh, my God, what an awful human being. No, but, like, I would describe them as a lot, and they're very <laughs> enthusiastic, and to be fair, 
I can be a lot. Like I could be like super enthusiastic about something and want, especially in my younger days. But even now where I'm like, here is something I'm super passionate about. Let me um, give you every single detail about it, whether or not you're ready to hear it. Um, and not maybe sometimes notice if you're ready to hear it and then be like, right, you're on the same page as me, right? And then um, have people stare at you blankly. And sometimes others will indulge that person because mm -hmm. it's just easier to do that than push back against like, okay, just go along with it. It's harmless. It'll be more exhausting to fight with them. I, I do think too, it's interesting because this is like a true crime story. They kind of, you know, not really super in-depth address some things, but I liked how they addressed kind of the genre of true crime and mm -hmm. Marco's interest in it because obviously there's a lot of people interested in this. And we see like you have a, you know, you have a note here of like Margot has a sense of glee. <laughs> like mm -hmm. she's so excited about yeah. this. And it's like people died here. Yeah. Like there's no way in hell I'm sleeping in that bed. Like this is a big place. Let's find a different bedroom. Yeah. You know, sleep on a couch. I'm not sleeping mm -hmm. in that bedroom. Um, and but then kind of a little bit towards the end, one of the, the talking heads is talking about how, you know, she went through this traumatic experience and she ended up avoiding abduction but then after that several more abductions happened hmm. so and she was never able to identify the person so maybe there's this like lingering sense of guilt about not being able to help solve that crime so now she's hmm. like obsessively trying to solve all these other ones and investigate them and it's so it's kind of like a subconscious distraction or deflection or coping mechanism and i thought that that was such yeah. an interesting way to address that because so often especially in these kind of films, it's just put out there, but it's never, I don't know, addressed in any way whatsoever. Right. And at least here it's like, well, it makes sense for this character. I'm not, you know, not agreeing with what she's doing, not dismissing what she's doing, not, you know, this is not great for her relationship, obviously, but for this character, it makes sense and doesn't make me like, God, this, why is she so excited about these murders? Yeah. Like, that's gross. It's like, Okay, they attempt to explain it in a way that actually makes me sympathize with her. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think that that's interesting because it's you. We we haven't seen that perspective. Yeah, like anything that's kind of exploring like the true crime bit, there are creators mm -hmm. that probably have a very similar kind of relation that you know they are somehow connected to a crime and so this kind of feeds their their passion to participate um yeah. so i like that because it's very easy just to have them set up like i think about the podcasters in halloween yeah where yeah. it's just like there's not heft to them mm -hmm. but there is here they give her a good i think foundation mm -hmm. yeah and it doesn't make it as quite as like morbid or voyeuristic or exploitative as a lot of true crime stuff can be obviously and as it's presented a lot of the time but i mean we're all horror fans here right like we watch all this stuff all the time yeah. and how many times do we have to explain to people who don't get it like why we find it cathartic and mm -hmm. interesting and enjoy it and i think that this is a, a very respectful way to treat the subject matter and the character by actually 
working into her story. And yeah. honestly, it's a little bit more than I expected from a Hell House movie. So yeah. props to that. <laughs> I like, yeah. I I also got like maybe a touch of neurodivergence from the character as well, just in her interactions with others, because it's not just like enthusiasm with like presenting this project, but like when Chase is introduced, like when he arrives on the scene, she immediately, like she's so excited to see him. She begins like bombarding him with questions. And like, that's one of those things that I hate. Like if you want a way to make me immediately withdraw into a shell, ask me like six questions in 30 seconds and don't give me room to breathe whatsoever. Like she, and she's not doing it from a place of like wanting to hurt him in any way, but she's so happy to see him. And there's like this complete disregard for like social norms and uh, uh, just personal space and boundaries. Like those are completely out the window. And again, like it's a character that like, can be like annoying to watch on screen, like really Mm -hmm. at times really frustrating. But I think the performance is so good um, that you don't hate the character. It's like not a character like, oh, I can't wait till they buy it. More like, oh my goodness, girl, what are you doing right now? That was like the biggest step up for me in this film. Like it it looks better than any of the other films, but the performances are so much better. Mm-hmm. then like i'm sorry like you look at hell house 2 and even while there was an element right like a tv show and this kind of stuff those performers were just like so like i i don't know i could have found people on the street that could have done better than some yeah. of those people but here it felt like like these are these are these are actual actors mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels like and i believed it and i think that destiny brown who plays rebecca she was such a critical character to have in mm-hmm. this because she feels like our, our entry into it because she feels yeah. very, you know, normal, I guess, for lack of a better term. I, that's very and, grounded. It's yeah, very, very grounded. grounded. She has a job like she's not necessarily into this, but she's doing it to support her partner. She's kind of an, an entry for a, a lot of people into this world and her performance helps balance Margot mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because Margot's so over the yeah. top that, you know, Rebecca's able to actually sell the scares mm-hmm. so much more because I feel like that's how most people would be reacting. They wouldn't be excited like, oh, grab the camera, let's go. Like, no, we'd be like, what the fuck? Let's get let's out of here. Get out this of here. is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a nice balance, I think, between yeah. them. But I think, too, you learn, like, over the course of her doing her show, like, nothing has ever really happened. I've never really uncovered anything. Yeah. Right? Like, you kind of find that out. Like, so, like, they've done all of these investigations, but they've never found anything. And now, for mm-hmm. the first time, they actually have. And they're in way over their heads at this point. Um, yeah. You mentioned, like, the second movie. And I think... This is a case where, like, less is more. Like, with the second movie, there's a lot more speaking parts. Like, there's a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the clairvoyant that you think is going to be a major character. And then about 20 minutes into the movie, he's killed off, like, unceremoniously. And you're like, wait, that just happened. I mean, I kind of loved that about mm-hmm. that because <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. Sure. Um, 
but yeah at the end though like some of those like monologues and mm-hmm. it's like oh wow okay. this is going on a bit but there's so many speaking roles and so many parts and here i felt like the only because there's so few performances you get to just focus on like the trio mm-hmm. and then like the three kids the only two roles that you know i thought were a step down like there's the real estate woman who I'm like, all right, this isn't the best, but it's only in there for such a short time that you're mm-hmm. like, okay, whatevs, I can deal with this. It, um, it did feel awkward, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. She's like, are you okay? Yeah. Do, you Do we need, need to come to... back? <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know yeah. what's going on. You're new? What the mm-hmm. fuck? <laughs> what do we think of Chase? Uh, I thought this was going to be another case of like someone like suffering addiction, but I think it's more someone suffering from either schizotypal or schizophrenia like we learned that he's someone that disappears for days at a time because he is seeing things because he's having very lucid hallucinations not necessarily delusions but he's very aware that he often sees and hears and perceives things that aren't really there and i thought that was like fascinating because we don't when we see schizophrenia portrayed in film, it's often done in a really damaging, negative, uh, hurtful way. And I thought Chase was one of the kind of better rounded characters here. I 100% agree. I like that we don't get kind of a, a standard storyline of, you know, oh, he's off the wagon or has relapsed somehow. And um, because I feel like that can, like, it's real. It happens. It's a story. But, again, I think that this film makes smart choices in saying let's do something a little bit different and have there be another layer to it. Um, and I like, typically, I am the person that will be really mad with Mm -hmm. details that are kind of not super well defined, but I'm okay with us not knowing, like, the full picture, um, it leaves it up to interpretation a little bit more, but, yeah, it... It was nice to see that we didn't get scenes of him on a bender of some kind yeah. mm-hmm. and disrupting things that way. I I liked his performance, too. Like, I thought that as an actor, he did really great. I liked the dynamic between him and Margot as siblings. Um, I was wondering what you guys thought about the story he ends up telling about his last you know, kind of incident where he disappeared for a few days and how it was because there was this little girl that he was trying to help find her mom in the hotel and like explaining it in that way and how she ended up like it being tied to this story. I'm not sure I needed that. I don't know how you guys felt about it because it was, yeah. Anyways, I'll I'll tell you what I like about it. What I like about it is that he is like aware that these things aren't real. Like he's not insisting these things are real and they're not. 
mm-hmm. or in some ways they end up being real, like he's being led around by a supernatural entity. And I'm I'm assuming that it's like one of the Carmichael ghosts that basically is like telling him to go here. Yeah. And that these are things that are pulling him his, some strings, which leads me to I'm going to have to break this out. It's a trap. I mean, basically <laughs> what's yeah. happening here is we had like the clowns from the fair trying to I'm assuming that it was the clowns that were killing the children or luring the kids in and like that's who Margot escaped from when she was a kid and now when you think like years later somehow she's coming back to this place like it's all full circle and now like her brother is getting pulled into this well like it's like you never get to truly escape like you might get to leave for a little while but eventually this sort of evil is going to lure you in and I kind of like that about this hmm yeah not sure where I've landed on it yet because part of me is like well it's like using his mental illness as like a you know excuse kind of mm-hmm. or like so that nobody will believe it necessarily but also like is it I guess god these Carmichael's these ghosts these clowns are really like they're working strategic like they're out mm-hmm. there planning this stuff a little bit more mm-hmm. maybe than <laughs> they're the last rich you know, they're like super rich. They don't really have a care in the world. Not much to do. Well, yeah. and I guess the other thing is like they did it. They brought it upon themselves, right? Like because nobody wants to go to that house. So they're like, God damn it. We got to get out there and like recruit victims. <laughs> they have mm-hmm. to work because they've done such a good job that nobody wants to go there. So yeah. they really like put themselves in, in a bind. And I guess mm-hmm. they do. I, mean, I guess from that perspective. I think I just talked myself into it making more sense. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Nicole? Yeah, I I think, it, again, part of that tricky bit of needing to sew together these storylines and finding that in is hard because, yeah, it could, when we hear the story of chases I think it would be very easy for the film to play into okay well let's amplify some of these more damaging depictions of what this can look like and how it's played out in other aspects of his life how it's Uh impacted his relationship and how it's fed into this evil that's drawing them in but it doesn't these are just people that have been touched by it and I think are now kind of within, like, you, they can't get it off of them. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. From, like, a, a, a creative standpoint, I think if there is a flaw in Kennedy's process, like, sometimes he tries a little too hard to connect too many dots. Like, sometimes there can be fewer dots so like maybe that's one thing you could have taken out you could have said like had an episode needed a break so they sent me here to help you out for a bit and that would have been enough mm-hmm. so let's talk about the scares in this movie because i think this is where the movie gets so much right and i think like right from jump street one of my favorite scares in this movie it's early on 
And it is the, I want to say this too, she's not on with us today. I had the immense privilege of sitting next to Ariel while (laughs) this movie made its debut. And this movie plays, I know it's, it's streaming on Shudder. This really should have been a theatrical release of some sort because it plays so well with an audience that is amped up like I'm talking like the crowd was like oh no you didn't and don't open this door and like talking to the screen but in a good like love this kind of way Um, sitting next to Ariel during a movie when there is a jump scare she this is why you call it a jump scare because she puts her whole body into it. Like, she literally leaves her seat. Her arms, like, you know when Kermit the Frog gets excited and his arms yeah. go up in the air? Like, she did that at one point. She's like um, one of those, like, inflatable, like, outside a car dealership. It's, like. uh, exactly. It's like the, it's like the, the thing from Nope. Um, yeah. And it's awesome. It is the best experience. At one point, like, she did that, and then I yelped because, like, she scared me. I was going to say, that would scare the seat. shit out of me. If um, happened. It is one of the most fun experiences I've had, like, watching a movie. So Aww. highly – maybe that needs to be a Patreon level for, like, a 1000 bucks. <laughs> we'll fly Ariel out to a local movie theater to watch a jump-scare-heavy movie with you. Uh, I haven't cleared this with her, but I'm sure she'll sign on. No weirdos, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it was a blast. But the bedroom scene where Rebecca is just filming and talking to the camera and it's super casual. And then you reveal like the bloody bed. It's mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I liked that. I like the idea of something being visible, especially on like footage, right? Like there's something about the camera and recording it that you can see it there, but she doesn't necessarily see it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I thought that that was cool. Yeah. That, that was one of my favorites because it's also very early and I think it's also a really subtle way to speak to us, the viewers, of, like, why found footage? It's the the whole idea is that people film themselves, they film their um, happenings, their lives, because they don't want to miss things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of that, well, here, here's something that, going back, you, you'll see that you didn't see before. Mm-hmm. It's becoming easier to justify shooting everything now because I feel like we're living during a time where people want to document even the most banal parts of their lives at times. So just like making your bed and talking into a camera, it seems like a very TikTok thing to do. It seems like the kind yeah, of thing. Get that ready people with me. Do. Get ready. Yeah. I'm making making this bed. <laughs> Which is one of my least favorite trends in the whole world, but people seem to kind of love that sort of thing. So it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, because you know what I learned from Rebecca's "Get Ready with Me" is that mm-hmm. okay? I'm not the only one that cannot tell what goddamn corner of the sheet goes on the bed. <laughs> so okay. thank you, Rebecca, for pointing that out. Um, 
because see, that's why you watch it for for validation to know mm-hmm. that. All right, I'm not the only one who has no idea how to contour my face. Clearly, this person doesn't really either, so I'm okay. Excellent. So you <laughs> well, got some and- homemaking tips. Excellent. <laughs> yes. And it's also a way for her to get a dig in at Margot. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you want you want everything on camera. Here's me making the fucking bed. Yeah. Like, how riveting for and you. And Chase does that too, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And you get like with that, you get one of the best reveals in the movie. Like a completely and these murders, like the Carmichael murders, obviously. You know, they borrow a lot from the DeFeo murders in Amityville, where you have, like, you know, Ronnie DeFeo, who, like, gunned down his family in cold blood, and that led to, like, the whole Amityville horror. Like, it's borrowing, like, very heavy from that story to build its lore here, but you see the aftermath here, and it's really horrific. Like, the... Mm It, there's not a lot of special effects in this movie, um, but the ones you do see, the still photography that's shown early on, like when they show the, I think it's the mother's corpse uh, and how that body is like shredded, like it's pretty gruesome. Uh, and yeah. then you see the effects here, it's pretty great. Yeah. Um, Part of like what really works here too is like changing it from the hotel to like this huge house like the manor itself feels like a character and it gives off very much like shining vibes or i got really big changeling vibes from this movie partly because you have like the red ball that keeps appearing and that's an obvious nod to the changeling but it feels so isolated from everything and you get this sense that like the three of them are just getting like swallowed up by this house and swallowed up by the grounds that even though like there is internet and even though they're only technically a few miles away from civilization, like upstate New York feels so massive. uh, It's very easy to get lost or feel like nobody is around. I think what's interesting about this and similar movies that do, it's just a reminder that, you know, nowhere is really safe. And like mm-hmm. safety is really like an illusion. Like, yeah, you're only a few miles out of town and you have internet, but that doesn't mean that terrible things still can't happen to you. Right. That's not a safety net. It's not a bubble of safety. Like mm-hmm. these horrible things can happen no matter what, like that's all kind yeah. of an illusion. So I, I like how it plays with that idea. And it's also just a nice change of pace from the Abaddon and just kind of the, the various states of disrepair that we see that location in. So it's a nice visual Mm -hmm. kind of to mix it up a little bit, I think. Yeah. And I like that again, just like with Blair Witch, you know, that civilization, that people and help are just a little ways out, Mm -hmm. but navigating that, becomes a whole challenge and i i like that it just feels isolated but just out of reach Mm -hmm. it's it's america it's very hard to get lost in america like that's a great line from the blair witch you know that uh which in some ways is very very true um but there are great stretches of of land that are enveloping and, and and 
daunting and hard to cross and there's no civilization around there are places where you would have to travel miles before you would potentially see a neighbor especially if you're unfamiliar um and growing we see this early in the movie when they get lost like they don't know how to read a map like if there's no internet and no cell coverage like and look put me in front of a paper map and i'm screwed like I'm oh, me not too. Know. Even on my phone, my husband's mm-hmm. always like, "Stop turning your phone." <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like just, just look at the map. And I'm like, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, forget about that. Um, there are a lot of other great scares that work in this movie, and some of them are subtle. One thing I love is like the scene with Chase when he's alone in this house, and he has the encounter with Margaret's ghost. Mm-hmm. And how that comes back later in the movie, like we actually get the footage from the camera later on and you see like, oh, this is just like an echo that's kind of replaying itself out. One of the questions I had is, let's say Margot and Rebecca don't go to the antique store and they don't look for in the secret compartment of the clock and they don't take all of that footage and then play it back. Does this happen, right? Is this a place that has maybe always been haunted, but the ghost can't necessarily hurt you? You just feel uncomfortable and eerie, and maybe you see things, but things can't really hurt you. But by like unleashing this thing, now you can you've unleashed something different. So you get that kind of suggestion in the documentary. Agreed, and I think it just again plays into this like hotel california vibe mm-hmm. of you know once you've encountered this there's really no shaking it and it will continue to play again and again with only you know new i guess kind of ghost proxies in place mm-hmm. and so i i like that um i think it's a nice way again to to make the story feel very robust and complete. Yeah. But they didn't, so Margot and Rebecca and Jay, they didn't see that footage though. They didn't see the footage. It was like, yeah. but it was taken out of like, it's kind of, I, I'm thinking of the idea of like removing something from its resting place. Like it was right. placed there and now it's been disturbed. Right. It's a good question. But I, I, regardless, I like the fact that just thinking about the fact that they don't know what's on that footage, mm-hmm. which makes everything that happens to them even worse, scarier. <laughs> because oh, yeah. they, they don't know that that, you know, they don't that's know that point. that's Margaret. They don't know about the mask thing. They don't know about the footage of Patrick's transition or the song. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't know about all those connections, at, at least from what I'm gathering, like Margot, she's like, how do these things connect? But she doesn't actually have that information fully because she doesn't have the mm-hmm. footage. Like, I don't even think she realizes that Patrick worked there. Yeah. And like, that was the connection. So that just makes everything scarier. Like, not only is this happening, like she doesn't even have answers for why, really. I hadn't even made that connection because you're right. They do say like, by the time the film i think it was like the brother that like develops it's rebecca's brother that develops the film right um 
by the time that that film is developed, like Mm -hmm. Rebecca had been dead for five days or so, or had been missing for five days. So you're right. That does make it all the more terrifying for them. Like that, why is this kind of happening thing? You see like these black cloaked figures and they're like, what is going on here? Like that is, that's great connection. Well, and it's kind of tragic too, right? Because Mm -hmm. Margot's so obsessed with true crime and so upset, like her whole thing is net sleuth, right? Like is solving these cold cases putting the pieces together and at the end ultimately she becomes a true crime story herself oh, so. I love that. <laughs> well and i do think that it is i mean you get i i like the family connections as well with these people it seems we don't spend lots of time in kind of sussing out every bit of their dynamic but it just seems very natural and so it makes these moments where the the fear has amped up more tangible because we understand kind of how these you know as with chase and margo etc um are are kind of playing but i think that yeah the unknown um i think is so much scarier because we want answers so that we know how to how what to do next what does this mean and how do we function with it and so when weird things start happening and i think more people are starting like chase and rebecca are starting to say yeah there is something really Mm -hmm. messed up i think that exuberance quickly turns to a bit of oh fuck but I can't leave. I feel like the first time something creepy happened, like let's say the dumbbell waiter rings, right? And you know that's going to come into play like, oh, what's this? And they're like, oh, back in the day, like when they had like staff, you could ring the staff from the kitchen and they would come up and like bring you like coffee or tea or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're like that's going to come into play later on because I know how movies work. When if the first time something were like that were to happen to me, like, hey, I know like we're all together. There's only three of us and something in the house is ringing to me from one of the bedrooms to come bring me something. That's when I'm grabbing my keys and looking for a holiday in to stay. Oh, yeah. In. Or that footage that Chase has right when he's alone in the house. Yes. And they, they see it with. OK. Yeah. When that when her hand goes around that corner, mm-hmm. I nope. that is. That is very unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> I did not, I did not like. I say I don't like it. I mean, I loved it, but I did yeah. not like it. Um, yeah. Once you see that footage, I would be like Audi five thousand. Like that's it. We're done. Goodbye. Oh, the clowns in the closet. <laughs> like, oh, there's a clown in the coat closet now. Yeah. When that guy's like, oh, it's locked. I haven't been in there for years, and it just magically like, mm-hmm. like throws its doors open. Like, no, thank you, ma'am. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> but that's the idea. I think set up even at the beginning because there's that they have the clips of I'm forgetting what that show is that they reference that had done like broadcasts from like the 80s oh, news show yeah. yeah yeah and they're like yeah he would be there and then these weird things would happen and it drew people there right um to explore so it's like we're sitting here being like no like if that was happening we would be out but there's also people that are like 
yeah. this is so cool and I want to experience myself and maybe right. something really scary oh, will happen. I think we would go there, but I don't think we would stay there. I wouldn't. I, I do not see the I know that there's a lot of people out there. I do not see the appeal. Like I will visit movie locations, mm-hmm. like the most dumb, like, oh, this is the sidewalk where this mm-hmm. thing happened. Like I would love that, but like ugh. Like, like true crime locations, like visiting a house. Okay. Like, so my wife wants to stay at the Lizzie Borden house because we're like not far from it. She was like, hey, how about we like have like a romantic weekend at the Lizzie Borden house, which I know is careful, a really careful weird thing to say. Um, but I'm like, sure. And it's like not necessarily typically my thing, but like I will totally do that. Um, yeah. I could see being like drawn. And I think like even like Don, the guy who like is the caretaker of the house is like, right. yeah, like a lot of people stay here, but no one tends to stay for more than a few nights. And I think like the implication is like, weird things tend to happen there but nothing that hurts anyone but you get this feeling like there's a lot of people seeing that ghostly hand come from behind the door and then they're like oh uh we gotta check out a little bit early you know the internet isn't quite as good as you said it was here so (laughs) we gotta go that's true well does that give you does that make does that make you give it five stars on airbnb or is that like a two do you lose stars because you got scared or does it gain stars? I think I I would worry about giving it a bad review because I would worry. <laughs> it would come after would, you. Yeah. Like I feel like I would maybe just try not to review it and forget that it ever happened and maybe chase my name and move. Um, <laughs> speaking of internet, what about the, I think one, one of the better scares of this movie and it kind of parallels what you see with like, Paul and the ghost two scares that really parallel the one with like Paul and the ghost girl in the first movie, but you have like Rebecca and the real estate agent scene and it starts like kind of subtle. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, she's showing these pictures of the house and then the Abaddon hotel pops up like, Oh, that's kind of weird. And then you get the like, Oh, this is the house we're in right now. Like that is one of the best scares in it kind of over delivers like it goes a little bit too hard at the end with like the ghost like okay you can actually rein it in by a couple degrees um yeah like the sound mix is a bit too much um but everything leading up to that just the clicking of the it's so good and so creepy and just like it lets you put the pieces together like Mm -hmm. she's like wait that's me Mm -hmm. and not only is that just me that's me right now yes and I, I like how it it there's a patience in that scene that I appreciate. You know, yeah. I think it does go too far at the end where the ghost is like right in her face. And it's, you know, it's like, OK, it's like very new metal but, at the end. Yeah. But up until that point, like, I appreciate the patience and letting us all like follow along mm-hmm. with her. It's very creepy. And also like the awkwardness of being on like and your new job mm-hmm. call and then being like, OK, I'm not going to freak out. But also I'm freaking out. Yeah. Like what would you do in that? case like the impulse would be to get up and like check it out and investigate but also i'd be very terrified to get up and move yeah yeah the whole thing is awkward and like in multiple ways it's stressful in multiple ways yeah there's there's no right way i think to necessarily handle that situation either you're just gonna sit there and be 
petrified and like nervously click through things and be peeing your pants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think this is something that's really great that all of the films have, I think, good utilization of these like moments where things are just slowly kind of coming into view. Mm-hmm. Um, and it lets these scares kind of ratchet up naturally and you kind of go on the same experience as someone who's seeing it because it takes you a minute and then you're like, oh, got it. You're in danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely does that. And if you're in danger, like what if I just bury my head in the sand and ignore it? Maybe it'll go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's when the Hell House series is at its best. There is a patience in delivering scares that a lot of series lack. Um, that it absolutely has a lot of confidence in like what it's able to deliver. Um, even the lesser movies, like Part Two, even though I don't necessarily love that entry, I think the first thirty minutes are very strong. And I think like one of the best scares in the whole series, it's just like text messages on a cell phone where it's like they have no eyes and then it's repeated over and over. I'm like, that's really creepy. And that's the kind of scare that stays with me longer than just like something jumping out going like boogity boogity like that one really. Uh, But this we'll talk about later, like the no eyes thing is something that is like throughout this series. uh, We see that. Um, chase's death too or chase's disappearance as well like again going back to like those fucking clowns um him waking up and it's pitch black and him going like after he's already been getting messed with and him like the i think the only mess with him because he said like i'm leaving in the morning like if he doesn't say that maybe he's okay but they're like oh Mm. you're gonna leave like no we're not going to let you leave um him waking up and saying like there's something in the room with me and it's pitch black like the whole way the scare is set up is so well done he's like i just heard my door open and then when he's like bargaining with the clown like he's sitting there looking at it and filming it, he's like i'm just gonna get my bag i'm just gonna get my stuff i'm really sorry i'm gonna go and as he's moving and panning the camera the clown is panning with him and it's just so incredible. It's it's, again, like it's a real skill to deliver something like that. It's like not an easy scare to do. Uh, And I just love how that whole scene plays out. Because you never know, like what is going to be the clown's next move? Mm -hmm. Are they suddenly going to be super fast and run? Are they it? Yes. And yeah, your heart kind of breaks for, for him as he's leaving because he keeps apologizing and saying, sorry, sorry. Um, when he wasn't the one that picked this place mm-hmm. in the story, like he's not the reason they are there. Yeah. So I would, imp- I would implode in this situation. Like, yeah. I don't even know. I, I, I just would combust. Like, I, I would, I don't know. <laughs> be so scared yeah um and but i appreciate too like you mentioned like you don't know what the clowns are gonna do and i love that they never take that bait 
like we don't ever see the clouds like lunge at anybody right nope. like they don't take that kind of cheap scare bait that we see in so many films right they're methodical. so many horror films like it's it actually works to their advantage like just that slow plotting you know kind of michael Myers sort of mm -hmm. thing is so much more scary than if the clown actually did be like blah yeah. <laughs> or it's it's mouth open and there was a bunch of like sharp teeth or yeah. like that would be and then we would be like rolling our eyes but they never break that tension by not taking that bait yeah. and i i love that because yeah i never really had an issue with clowns but i feel like these movies are giving me an issue with yes <laughs> yeah i growing up i never thought clowns were scary like mm -hmm. i don't i never under like i would watch bozo the clown every day i loved ronald mcdonald i'd go to the circus you know and now as an adult and like clowns super traumatizing don't like them yeah. don't want anything to do with them please get them off my screen they're too much mm-hmm oh I guess if you are in Chase's position as he's hearing things and the experience is really popping off, is your first inclination going to be, okay, let me grab my camera and let's film this? No, probably not. Oh, God, no. Mine is to just run out, probably to cower in terror, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's always the conceit that you have to give these films. Yeah. Is that he would have just ran. Yeah. You got to give it a little bit of grace. You know what I mean? Like, you yeah. got to give it a little bit of, otherwise we don't have a movie. It's like right. any drama you have on television. Like, if these two characters just talked to one another and had a 30-second conversation, most of, like, the dramas we see on TV would, like, they would be resolved. Um, did, did either of you watch like Arrested Development season five? No. So, Nicole, the guilty guys. <laughs> That's all I'll say. It's the guilty guys, right? Why that did not become a binge-worthy show on Netflix is because like they would just plead guilty, and then like you couldn't do a a, a binge-worthy show because it was a thirty-second show. Like we plead guilty. Um, it's one of the best bits on the whole series at the very end. Um, you have to give it like some leeway. And I think at this point, like we've seen so many found footage movies, like unless it's really egregious, uh, like bombs are falling out of the sky or something. I'm like, I'm willing to give it a little bit of grace. And I think it works here too, because like you're not, he's not filming it as he's like slowly backing away, he's mostly like, I'm getting my bag. I'm trying to go. And a lot of it is just like what you hear. Uh, yeah. And that makes it even scarier. Exactly. And I do like that from the other side when, um, Margo and Rebecca discover that he's gone. Yes. I like that. All they see is the bag. Mm hmm. And, how that communicates in a scary of like someone has to flee very quickly and yeah. wasn't able to take their stuff. So it kind of gives credence to that. Okay. Something is really a mess here. Yeah. And then later, like when he's texting them and she's like, Oh, maybe he's in his room. Like that's where I left his phone. It's like, what would make you think that everything is he's already like, we search for hours for him. He left his bag in the middle of nowhere. 
And like, what makes you think his first instinct would just be like to text you hi and not, and then the texts that they receive are increasingly more unhinged, like met some new friends and, Oh, you want to meet them? They wouldn't like that. Um, and Margo just seems to think everything is hunky dory. It's like, again, like the using and incorporating technology in such a way that you use that to build on tension and uneasiness and scares is something we don't see enough in a lot of these movies. And I think like that's really well done here. Like that, like met some new friends. As soon as you hear that line, you're like, fuck me. That's not good. It feels very like she's in denial. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and she and she's in denial that like, oh, this situation that I put these people that I care about in, and mm-hmm. now something's happened to them, and yeah. I did that. You know, it feels like like oh yeah, no, it's okay. He's done this before. Like he's gonna come back, and you know, just rationalizing everything. Mm-hmm. Up until yeah. like literally, she can no longer yeah. rationalize these things. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I think it caps with. Like they're in the room yeah. with you. Yes. I found actually quite funny. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, uh, well, now now you will meet them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think playing that and cutting back and forth with like the eight millimeter or like 16 millimeter footage of the home movies and seeing how it played back, how it, they both played out very similar works really well. I think like the scene with, I think Catalin in the, I think it's Caitlin or Catalin, Catherine, Catherine in the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, and this yeah. like poor girl, like again, like that creepy doll mask um, and knowing what we had seen earlier when we had seen that mask on the, on the ghost, like it's great. I mean, it just comes full circle and it gives you an explanation without over explaining it. Well, and a good setup, too, as to why we would have that footage from 1989. A very similar approach to Paranormal Activity 3, mm-hmm. which is you have a videographer yep. in the house. So they would have this equipment. You have this girl who is really, really, really interested in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And so a rich family, they're going to be able to supply her with that for her hobby. They're bored. She's bored. She doesn't have a lot to do. Like she's just going to like film everything as she can see and make little movies. And like her older brother and sister, like probably her two best friends. And, and she wants to do as much as she can with them. Um, And it just works really, really well again. Yeah. There, there is a real tragedy Mm-hmm. to this family too because you have to think it's like okay well the acts like before up until a certain point it's just a sad story right like Patrick mm-hmm. just gets in this accident and his sister dies and he loses the functionality of one of his arms and like that's really sad but there's nothing supernatural or super sinister mm-hmm. it was just they got hit by some drunk drivers it's yeah. just you know it's just your everyday tragedy um but then it's not until he gets a job, apparently, at the Abaddon yeah. that things get cranked up to the next notch. Yeah. And, you know, just using that and becoming susceptible to what's happening there because of this tragedy that yeah. happened. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's really super scary, but it's also like yeah. 
really sad this whole story <laughs> see he gets that promise like i'll bring your sister back but and it's also what makes it tragic too is like there's a kind of like a sinister undertone of like i'll bring back my one sister but in order to do that i have to eliminate the rest of my family and it makes you i hate to say this because it sounds a bit grody but it questions like what was the relationship with like patrick and margaret margaret where like i'm going to eliminate the rest of my family if there's the potential to bring back my sister do you think that's what happened like did they say that what do you mean yeah like he had to kill his the rest of his family to bring back margaret why wouldn't he have i don't know that was the assumption i made and maybe i'm wrong maybe it was just it could be that just because he was being filmed like hey you're not supposed to be filming me and that's the night because there is like a little snippet where they're like oh this is the night that he killed everyone was like the last time he said you're not supposed to film me but you kind of make that assumption like that is the trade-off. Like if you do these things for me, because um, he's not – was he supposed to be? I mean, is it explained in the movie? Was he supposed to be part of like the ritual suicide and yes. he was just arrested for getting in a fight? Okay. Yes. Yep. So maybe it's not super clear. And maybe I think he would – it felt to me more like he was just trying to transcend to something else. Okay. And maybe that was the way that he had to do it rather than like like bringing her back actually physically. It was more like I'm okay. going to go join her in Got some it. ways. Got it. And I have okay. to do this in order because he disappears, right? And the assumption is that mm -hmm. he becomes one of these clowns. and That's the assumption, yeah. Like goes into this other realm or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. And it felt more like he was trying to get there and he had to sacrifice to get sacrifice too i would assume to get him and margaret there together kind of maybe it's like just that a point and just the the guilt i think you know guilt i think is a big underlying mm -hmm. thing for both him and Margot. so well mm -hmm. and it ties into his line and i forget it verbatim when he does his transformation into the clown about how they all sacrifice to give something yeah oh that's right yeah okay so yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about cults and kind of this mental conditioning. So a lot of them, especially someone who's experienced a loss, there's a thousand and six ways to manipulate that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, anything else before we wrap things up today? Um, I... I'm here for this. I'm so happy we have this because the last three films, it felt like it left me on like a little bit of a disappointment. And mm -hmm. I just think it's cool to, that you can see that like another one can come out and actually surprise you and yeah. actually reinvigorate the franchise in a lot of yeah. ways and get me excited for it again. So that's, that's super cool. So I really yeah. am happy this we got to do this. <laughs> kind of like Bride of Chucky coming out after Child's Play th a 3. Totally. Like, oh, we can do something really fun again. Yeah. No, I, same. I had worries going into it, but I love the, the way that they really seem to have closed a lot of loops with this. And it will be interesting now to see if more are in the works, what mm -hmm. direction they'll go. Yeah. This is the best since the first one. Totally. And I would 
put it on par with the first one. In some ways, it exceeds it because I think in the eight years since part one, I think that Cognetti has learned even more ways. Like to, he's really good at crafting a plus scares. Um, and I think there's a great story here. So I really love this movie. It sits pretty high in my top 10 for the year. So when we do our rankings, like something shocking would have to happen. Like a half dozen movies would have to come out between now and the end of the year to knock this out of it. Um, it's a shame that it, is only streaming because it really is a fun movie to watch. And I think it's going to be a great kind of like one of those really every Halloween season, I could see throwing this on along with hell house LLC. The first one is already a staple of every October. And I could see like doing a double feature of these back to back. It's a really fun one, two punch. And I'm looking forward to uh, sitting down with Stephen Cognetti later this week and kind of talking about, how it came together because he'll talk about like I um he'll well maybe we'll save it for the episode he'll talk about where he wants to go with the series and what the next cool. plan is um there is like the post credit sequence here like at the mm-hmm. end of the credits you get okay I didn't see this you guys so okay. tell me what what happened it's like ten seconds long it's the uh woman who plays the she's like the talking head um Alice. Right. So uh-huh. it's just her taking off, like, the microphone going, oh, hey, did you hear they're going to run, like, the fair again? Like, now that the hotel is gone, like, they're going to make that the fairgrounds again. And, like, when she gets off camera, like, the clown is in the background. So, yeah. like, for the first time, <laughs> like, the clown is out in the world, which yeah. makes me ask, like, when are we going to get Art the Clown versus the Hell House Clown? You know, I want that mashup. I don't want, you know, forget Chucky versus Megan. Give me Art versus the Abaddon clown in a mashup. What if if he is a clown that has been out in the world? What if he is one of their their clowns that has been out? Oh, yeah. What if he is an Abaddon clown? Well, I think he's saying, like, this is the, it is the Abaddon clown. It's like the first time you see him. No, what if Art is? Oh, he's the fourth (laughs) clown who was the fourth clown. That would be amazing. Uh, You never know. And maybe we'll find out with Terrifier 3 coming to theaters this October. Uh, Nicole, what is going on with Bodies of Horror? Bodies of Horror is trucking right along. Um, You can find us bi-weekly over at the Anatomy of a Scream uh, pod squad. Um, I'll glad to be kind of pod siblings with Rach yes. um, but uh, yeah just dropped uh, an episode on Inside um, which I love that movie so much um, had a really amazing conversation about pregnancy and childbirth and how that can be physically um, and emotionally traumatic and physically disabling even at points is not something that we talk about a lot um so um i think it's really awesome um to be talking about some films that a lot of people don't put on kind of their radar as being related to disability um and things like that but do have some real relevance so yeah yeah, great stuff in the works and where can folks find you um, you can find me on 
Twitter at um, Bodies Whore. Um, or you can go to Blue Ski, Blue Sky, um, and find me at Bodies of Whore over there. And I have been posting to Instagram. Um, just because why not? And I am Bodies of Horror Podcast. Rachel, what is going on with you over in Halloweenies and Girls on the Boys and with the writing? Yeah, so Girls on the Boys is doing great. We just wrapped up season two and we'll have an episode dropping soon about Superman 2 with our friend Mackenzie Gerber. And then hopefully we will also have an episode coming up, a season two recap featuring Mrs. Nicole Gerber. Yeah. <laughs> Gobel. Gerber, Gobel. Said Mackenzie Gerber. Um, so yeah, hoping Nicole will join us for that and that'll be super fun. And then we'll be chugging on into season three. And that is also on the anatomy mm-hmm. of a pod squad feed. So yeah, lots of great shows on there. And then Halloweenies, we just wrapped up Child's Play and we're going to just be closing out the year with some fun stuff um, or rankings covering the guest which i'm so excited about um and so yeah you can find that on the bloody fm network and i'm on all the things either as vinyl girl g-r-r-r-l or on instagram the one odd one out is the vinyl girl (laughs) okay so for us listeners i feel like i have changed up and i feel really bad for my co-hosts because like Every week I've been like, how about we, and I'm sure they're kind of getting sick of me changing things and they're super nice. And they're like, sure, we'll do that, Mike. Um, But like, we're going to kick off 2024 with Frankenstein. Originally we were going to do the three Karloff movies and that felt like a cheat for us. So we're going to do the universal Frankensteins. There's eight movies in the series. Uh, I asked Brian, because he's our classic horror guru, like, how would you feel about that? And Brian is like, fuck yeah, let's do that. So we pushed it back, though, to January just to give he and I more time to prepare and research and plan the episodes out. So that will drop early January, but you'll get all the Universal Frankensteins, everything from the 1931 classic all the way through Abbott and Costello meets, which I'm really excited to talk about, like really the birth of horror comedy. In between now and then, though, we have, like, a solid month. So what are we going to do? I'm like, folks, what if we, like, do something fun and just do, like, holiday horror? Like, let's kind of do some Christmas horror, some holiday horror. Like, give me some titles. And my co-hosts have stepped up with a number of, like, really fun movies that we're going to talk about over the next month so we're going to do like three or four kind of like christmas and holiday horror movies i'm going to finalize the list tonight um you know there actually might be one i think there's one we covered on the patreon so i might step away for that episode and give everybody a break uh which would be (laughs) great um christmas day we'll have a bonus episode which will be uh, Stephen and myself and maybe others doing a Muppet Christmas Carol. So I am super excited for that. Um, That'll be like talking about Michael Caine being on peyote and interacting with Muppets like they were real. 
Um, and then we will do our top 10 horror movies of the year where we each give our anyone who's on that show like giving their list for the year. So tons of stuff in December to look forward to uh, for the Patreon this month of November. We'll be covering Eli Roth's new movie, Thanksgiving. <laughs> you can become a patron at www.patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. About 50 hours of content up there right now with more coming. And when we hit 50 patrons, we will add Hellraiser to the uh, probably the most requested series we get. Um, we will add that to the list of franchises that we cover. And we'll make that an immediate thing once we hit 50 patrons. So a little work to get there, but become a patron today. Support the show. Thanks once again, listeners. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And stay tuned for a little bonus show later this week with the writer-director of Hell House Origins, Stephen Cognetti, as we talk about how this one came together. If you're traveling this week for Thanksgiving, safe travels, get where you're going. Hopefully you're going to have an enjoyable time with your friends and family. And if you're not, just put us in your earbuds. We got (laughs) 200 plus episodes you can power through while your drunk racist uncle tells you about who's controlling the media and why uh, Trump should be president again. Drown him out with our amazing tones okay (laughs) love y'all